Welcome to Season 2 of Grain IQ. I'm Chad Moyer. Grain marketing is a critical piece in keeping your operation profitable. And in Season 1 of Grain IQ, we covered the basics of grain marketing. Season 2 dives deeper into grain marketing concepts that we covered in Season 1. So if you haven't listened to that, we invite you to start there. Now, if you find yourself listening to market analysis, you might hear terms like the technicals or the fundamentals. Throughout the podcast, we've learned about fundamental trading and analysis. This week on Grain IQ, what is technical trading? Can it be used with fundamental trading? How can it be used on your operation? We learn more today with Mike Zuzalo. He's the president of Global Commodity Analytics. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here today. First of all, I'd like to get a little bit of background about you uh, and a little bit about Global Commodity Analytics, kind of how you guys came to be and, and uh, the services that you provide, Mike. So first of all, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you. Well, first, Chad, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be a part of this podcast. What a great idea to have it. Um, my background started in about 1995 when I became a registered commodity broker, a registered commodity representative, started out my career at Utterback Marketing back in Indiana and uh, migrated into my own business throughout the years, throughout the last 26 years or so, and essentially have my own sole proprietorship uh, in Atchison, Kansas, and uh, have become, I guess, somewhat known about from doing research and analysis. It's uh, pretty much all my own research and analysis that I've tried to glean and increase uh, and, and develop and improve over the years. I came from a background of history and economics and political science in college, but I also had a factory background when I was working in summers to, during in between college and during the summers, and I worked a lot in quality control. and. When I got into commodities, and this is where technical analysis really plays a big role, as well as fundamental analysis, but both play a really big role. And I kind of came to the conclusion early on that I wanted to do my own research and analysis because if I'm right or wrong, I need to know why. And if I'm relying upon someone else, then I'm never going to know why I was right or why I was wrong because it's going to be someone else's analysis. And so that's a great way to kind of think about technical analysis, in my opinion, is you're always learning and all the best technical analysts that I've known or come across always say that from the get-go, that they could be going at it for 15 years or 40 years and they're still learning. In fact, one of the pioneers, W.D. Gann, back in the 1960s, the guy that was responsible for the Gann lines, um, you know, this, this goes back that far as far as technical analysis, but he often talked about how he was still learning and trying to improve upon his technical analysis. So it's not unlike what we do in the markets every day. I found it very interesting that, you know, you have a factory background and a process background like that. But at what point did uh, farm commodities uh, kind of be the, uh, the thing that you wanted to do? And what really about this interests you and kind of fires you up? You know what I mean? Yeah, that I, you know, no one has ever asked me that question. I would put that at one of the top five questions that I've ever been asked, Chad. And I think it's just the basic understanding that you're dealing with a hard asset it's not like a piece of paper or a stock uh, or a bond on Wall Street. It's actually a hard asset that affects people. And when I learned and studied history and when I learned and studied economics and political science, 
it always came back to me that that commodity, that hard asset tended to make and shift and move history. So it always intrigued me. I think if I wasn't going to be a commodity broker, I oftentimes think I probably would have been an anthropologist or something like that because commodities really are cultural and they really do shift culture and they move history unlike maybe the stock market does. Very interesting. Before we talk about uh, the technicals and what you know, we brought you on to talk about, I'd just like to get your thoughts on uh, a marketing plan overall, because, you know, this whole series is designed to help uh, people understand what is a marketing plan. Uh, how do you put it together and the importance of having that? So in, in your mind, what is uh, why is it so important to have a piece of paper with a plan on it that helps you attach a price to a bushel of grain? I think the biggest reason, and this goes back to my experience, uh, what I have found through the last 26 years is when I sit down and am relatively calm and think about profit instead of think about hitting the highs or the lows of a market and what really a producer, a corn producer or a cattle rancher should, uh, should do, um, I, I think that's where you make your best decisions, you make your best plans. And there's kind of a joke in the industry, but it's kind of real too. You can set up a marketing plan, you can put in an open order, for example, uh, to sell uh, April live cattle at $155. And you have that open order in and all of a sudden it gets to $154 and you start to get nervous. And all of a sudden the emotions take over and the psychology takes over and you cancel it. And we call that cancel if close because you end up not going with your marketing plan. And so what I try and do in my marketing plan is set my boundaries, set my goals, my profit, not the highs and lows, but my profit per acre or profit per head. And then if I really do feel like as I get closer to those price levels that I've made a mistake and it could go much higher or much lower if I'm buying feed, then I do some, but I don't cancel the complete marketing plan out and just shut it down like it wasn't worth doing in the first place. Maybe limit the number of orders you do instead of the full number that you had initially planned to do. So that to me is how you keep your disposition and your emotional control in the markets and in commodities. To me, that's 90% of it. You made mention of it before, you know, the fact that uh, technicals are not a new thing, although it kind of seems like uh, we talk about them more and more. But um, how did you learn about what they were? I mean, were there any resources? Were there things, uh, you know, in your in your background or in the years past that you used to help you learn about these technicals? Yeah, early on in the late 90s, uh, we used to watch CNBC because that was really the only channel out there at that point for financial news. And they did talk about commodities. And there was a fellow on there that had been around and taught uh, in New York, and his name was John Murphy. And he was a you know, weekly, if not daily guest there. And he was just the best in technical analysis. And it just opened your eyes to what you could see in a price chart. And he wrote a book and actually for a class, and it ended up being a six, 700 page book, but I use it almost every week still after this many years, but it's called Technical Analysis of the Futures Market. And it's by John J. Murphy and it's still in print. You can still get it on Amazon or a used bookstore if it has a lot of financial books in it. Uh, I would highly recommend that because it really starts you off with what technical analysis is, how it works with fundamental analysis, and then it really gets more detailed as the book goes along. 
This isn't the same guy that they wrote uh, that uh, Murphy's Law is framed on, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But it could have been with technical analysis. That's the other thing about technical analysis, Chad, right from the get-go. Anybody that gets into it's got to got to understand it's really great in hindsight, but it's it's that predictive power of technical analysis that made me think of Murphy's Law when you brought it up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh. All right. Well, let's get into our discussion. With that as a great base, let's talk about what these things are. And I think it is important that we start with a basis and, and a definition. What are the technicals? How do you define that, Mike? Yeah, Murphy would say it's the study of the market action, mainly using price charts and then trying to use those technical indicators uh, to help forecast future price trends. For me, Chad, I would build upon that a little bit and say it's overlaying tools or predefined instruments that have been created by someone like WD GAN or Elliott from Elliott Wave Theory um, and putting that onto a price chart um, for a specific asset. For me specifically, I tend to do the fundamental analysis to give me an idea of how high high could be and how low low could be. And then I use the technicals as a way to kind of pull triggers and help support my fundamental analysis. I don't think you can do one without the other. That's at least in my experience, not how it's worked for me. If you just do pure technicals, um, you're really buying into the idea of an efficient market. That means the price is right all the time because it's got all the news into it right away. That efficient market hypothesis or theory I don't participate in except maybe in a couple assets like the US dollar because we trade almost $7 trillion a day in that one asset or that currency exchange asset. That would be something would get you to efficient market, I think. But but corn, beans, wheat, cattle, hogs, it's just not enough money and volume, in my opinion, to make it an efficient market. Yeah, I was gonna, that was gonna be my question. Why are commodities and ag commodities inefficient, if you put that in air quotes, inefficient? Yeah, and this goes back to the number of players and the fact that it's a hard asset. And you know, when you think about grains versus livestock, my experience over the last five years or so, and especially since the, the, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, has been that the managed funds, the investor class market, um, tends to, I think, like the livestock market more. Why would that be? Because fundamentally, you can't store livestock in a bin and you can't take supply off the market. And there's Quite honestly, there's just fewer competitors out there in the in the export market because, for the most part, worldwide countries create their own livestock and meat to consume domestically instead of exporting it. So that would be my reasoning, and that and that's part of the reason why I think the the grains and livestock have difficulty being uh, an efficient market. Plus, I think the margin side of the equation probably keeps a lot of people out of commodities. The the lose your house in one week type mindset keeps people out of commodities and therefore you don't have that volume and open interest like the currencies do. I mean, think about crude oil and the dollar. Still, we still have crude oil priced in U.S. dollars and we still have about 60 to 70 percent of all commodities invoiced in U.S. dollars. That helps make it a lot more efficient. Do you think, too, the, the fact that there are so many questions, you know, I mean, futures, grain futures are traded for, what, three years before you actually harvest them or, you know, they actually have delivery on that contract. So at what point do we exactly know what we have to market at harvest time? Well, there's a lot of questions that lead up to that, right? 
Without a doubt, and that's going to create an environment where you're long one day and short the next day or the next week. You're exactly right. That really does create an extra amount of volatility. And I think generally speaking, an efficient market doesn't like a lot of volatility. It likes a new story. It prices that in. It ticks up and down a little bit, and it says, okay, I'm efficient again because everybody in the world knows what's going on, and they know the price. And I think that's also probably has to do with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange being such a large player, the largest player in the world in commodities. It's probably a little bit more spread out when it comes to equities and currencies when it comes to the actual trading. So that maybe adds to the inefficiency of commodities as well. At what point did the technicals become a market force within commodity trading? It's an interesting question because there's probably three or four answers, but I'll give you the answer that I think that means the most in the most recent time period. After the financial crisis, it seemed as though in the Great Recession, it seemed as though many analysts in the financial world, maybe not as much in the commodity world, but certainly my regulations have tightened up since then. But the financial world went through a change where it got a lot harder to be an analyst and a person who recommends certain specific trades and certain specific things. And so that came consequently and subsequently and almost at the same time as the rapid speed of these computers. And, and, and it just seemed a lot easier for a lot of, of the big banks, a lot of the trading companies to move more towards the quantitative trading, the just pure algorithm, mathematics, computer-related trading. I remember walking in Chicago about 10 or 11 years ago with the head of my clearing firm, and we walked past the building right next to the Mercantile Exchange, and he said people are, funds are literally vying for the office space that's closest to burying cable that goes underneath the city street to the Mercantile Exchange so that they can kill the latency, the delay of the computer wires so they can get the fastest trade-off just to beat their competitor. That's kind of a result in part because of the Great Recession and the financial crisis and some of the more stringent uh, uh, legislative acts that have been put in place as a result. Boy, when you start talking about being 25 feet closer, is that milliseconds or is that even less that you would be able to execute a trade uh, versus somebody that's down the hall from you? That made me think after I got done talking with him that I was in the right mindset of wanting to look six to nine months out because I would never be able to beat somebody that's looking at five milliseconds. And so that goes back to the rancher. That goes back to the farmer and producer. I try and make them understand, don't try and fight uh, the, the, the game or play the game on their terms. Play it on your ranch. Play it on your farm. That way you can win. So let's build a technical. If you can, and it'll be a little difficult being a podcast, but if, if you can describe what goes into a technical and, and how does it look? Yeah, the, the first thing I think we got to do to develop a picture in our minds is how I would relate technicals, Chad, is they're the pictures in a book. And a lot of people I think have tried, as I said before, to, to get away from the fundamentals and just use technicals. I don't believe that's useful or as useful as trying to use both. And so the fundamentals are the words in the book, the technicals are the picture in the book, and you're hoping the technicals show you something that maybe will help you in case something fundamental comes and you can make a decision off of that or a recommendation off that, 
or maybe the technicals start to show you something that you're on the lookout for. And that in that way, they're, they are a little bit more forward looking potentially. And I stress the word potentially. So you start simple and you build up from there. Um, you really, in my opinion, want to master some common technical indicators like a support line where the market finds lows that it doesn't want to go below. And you can literally draw a line off of that, those lows, and that's called a support line. And then a resistance line, that's where the market develops a certain level of highs that it makes over the course of a day or a week or a month. You know, that's the other thing about technical analysis. I've known traders that use a five minute chart. You know, I use a weekly and monthly chart for the most part. So technical analysis is in the eye of the beholder and who's using it. Um, so you've got the support and resistance lines. Sometimes those lines point in a different direction. In other words, the support line maybe will point upwards and the resistance line will point downwards. And that all of a sudden you can mentally and visually start to see maybe a wedge start to form. That tends to suggest when the lows are higher and the highs are lower and you start to get a tighter range, it's like a spring. It's, it's the market's getting ready to make a big move maybe. And it wants to get ready to prepare you for a significant move. I like wedges a lot in my commodity analysis of technical uh, of analysis with the fundamentals, because if you have fundamentals that suggest the market doesn't know what it wants to do, and then you see a wedge in the charts, it helps you, it helps support your fundamental analysis. So, I'm, and I'm thinking about when you're describing this, I'm thinking about momentum. How much push is behind the market right now? How active it is it? Does that impact the technicals at all, Mike? It does much more than it used to, Chad. Momentum and sentiment are two technical indicators that are much more important, in my opinion, than they were five or six years ago, because that goes back to the algorithmic trading and the size of the um, checkbook that the funds and the investors have compared to the commodity hedger, the grain farmer, the cattle rancher. Um, I think the oscillators is what is one of the key technical terms that you would want to look up. And Murphy spends a lot of time talking about the oscillators. And I enjoy the oscillators because they tend to tell me or help me understand whether there's more new buyers coming in or more new sellers coming in. And so when someone talks about an RSI, well, that stands for relative strength index, or they talk about a stochastic, those two are both technical oscillators that help help you derive maybe the ability to understand whether new sellers are going to come in or new buyers are going to come in because of the way their formulation, their calculation is, is, is done. And then the, how that shows up on the chart with the lines that they use. You've already mentioned a couple of indicators. I'm curious, how many different technical indicators are out there? Are, are, and are there some that we should be following as farmers? Yeah, there's hundreds. And I think that's the danger, you know, as far as you want to be right, you want to have confirmation. And so you end up what I would call stacking technical indicators. You stack them on top of one another so that they all move in sync with one another. And to me, that's a fool's errand. I think that you, at some point you've got to pick your top three or top five for what you're using them for, especially if you're using fundamental analysis and say, I'm going to go with these. I've got the most confidence in these. And therefore, I can farm my plan that I laid out with my producer, 
client and my subscribers that I work with. So my top would be that support resistance mindset and the wedge formation and how they can create that wedge. Moving averages, I think, are still very useful. They've been around a long, long time. Um, volume and open interest kind of goes back to that sentiment and momentum comment and question you had made a minute ago, Chad. I still think volume and open interest are extremely important. In fact, uh, uh, whether it's uh, uh, a Clay or Susan on the midday with the Rural Radio when I'm on with them, I'll often talk about, well, we're really sharply higher, but our volume's a lot lower than yesterday. So it doesn't mean like there's as much excitement in that trade potentially. And therefore the momentum and sentiment indicators maybe are pointing down. And that's where I go and look at the oscillators and other momentum and sentiment indicators. You mentioned the averages. How long of an average are you using or what seems to be the most useful to indicate what the what's going on in the markets? Yeah, really good question. I won't get too deep in the weeds because a lot of what we're talking about now is going to be more proprietary and what I've built up over the last 25, 26 years. But I can tell you, in my opinion, there are oscillators, RSIs and stochastics that I can define um, that I think are better than some others out there. Uh, the, the amount of days that you look at, I think are gonna be more accurate versus other days. Moving averages the same way. I'll give you one little bit of a pearl. I've, I've found that in the grains, I like the 40 day moving average more than I do the 50 day moving average, generally speaking. And so that's where, when I do my own analysis, whether it's fundamental and trying to understand the funds and trying to understand the technicals, you really do, I think if you take it seriously, and, and this is where I think the commodity analyst and the broker needs to do this, not necessarily the producer, because he's already so busy, but you gotta kind of keep records of where you are at and where you've been so that you can build upon the history. And I think that's where Murphy really stresses that. And all the great technicians uh, I think have really stressed that. And I buy into that wholeheartedly. Okay, so you've kind of described, you know, what the technicals are and, and the fact that they create a picture for us. And I'm not sure if this is gonna be easy to answer or not, but I'm gonna put it out there. What do they show? That, that is the question. I mean, why are you doing all this if it's not going to tell you what to do or suggest what's the right thing to do? And, and this is where, you know, I can use a real-time example here. Uh, the, the crop tour is going on, Pro Farmer crop tour is going on right now. And I don't want to date this podcast too much, but we're in late August. The crop tour is going on right now. They've come out, generally speaking, with disappointing corn yields, but the pod counts and soybeans are pretty strong. So I was looking at a November bean December corn ratio, the, the price of each other divided into each other. And I noticed that the beans were gaining on the corn. The, the price of bean, that ratio was going up against corn in the midst of this pro farmer tour and in the midst, Chad, of rain potentially coming in to the Corn Belt from the Gulf of Mexico, which at this point we hadn't seen much of that this summer. So I was sitting here thinking to myself, well, I want to sell beans fundamentally and get some hedges in place for the clients because we're at 1450. And I think the trade is already pricing in a very low carryover this year, but I don't know if I'm doing it at, at the right time right now. So I'm going to go to my November bean D's corn chart and look at it. And what I saw was a very strong support line where the beans had bounced off that support line and gone back up again. So I made the determination, and I sent a webinar out to clients about this. One of my key trigger points is gonna be if we, if we lose that support line and beans start losing the corn again, then I'll pull the trigger because along with a couple other indicators and triggers, 
that was going to kind of solidify the mindset that, okay, the market's getting it. They understand the bean yield could go up if we get rains. And that's essentially what we've been doing here. And that trigger did get pulled in most part because of the technical analysis matching up with the fundamentals. Are there other times of the year where some of these pictures could definitely be uh, sketching themselves out? You know, I'm thinking in the late winter, early spring, when you're starting to have that acreage discussion, or maybe at the end of the marketing year, when you start looking at ending stocks or beginning stocks and and how that's all going to play into the next marketing year. Are there other times in the year where these sort of things happen? Yeah, so I think you bring up a huge point. I mean, even the USDA in their March acreage analysis and estimates, because it's too early to, to really get any hard data, they talk about the bean corn ratio. And then so that helps the analyst understand what the government who is ultimately, you know, signaling to the markets what the supply demand fundamentals are. That's in part why I built that chart of the bean corn ratio is because USDA talked about it fundamentally and I've got the type of technology that I'm able to build charts on almost anything I want to at this point because of, of, of well, you have to pay for it, but it's out there now. You can get the data, whereas 10, 15, 20 years ago between broadband speed and the ability of, of some of these software products not really giving you what you want, um, it's changed a lot. So it helps the guy that's in an office as opposed to downtown Chicago. He can almost get exactly the same thing uh, the downtown Chicago office has. You know, I think I just proved one of your points, Mike, the fact that you can't talk about the uh, the fundamentals exclusively or the technicals exclusively. They really do relate and it becomes powerful when you when you start bringing them together a little bit. huh? I really do believe that there are others that I, I knew a very good trader that was an S&P 500 trader. And you talk about a person that was a day trader in Chicago that would take on uh, an enormous amount of risk every single day he came into work. But he was almost completely a chartist and a technician. But that was more to be more of a white noise issue, Chad. He was he didn't want to hear what other people had to say. He didn't want them to influence him with his, with their commentary at lunch or what he heard on the floor. He essentially used it as a blinder um, so that he did not look at fundamentals in that respect at all because he didn't want to be influenced one way or the other. And he relied upon that two or five minute chart almost solely. So it has an application. But I think in today's world without pits and without you know day traders, um, it's probably not as much as it used to be. I, I do really think the technicals can be built up to support a fundamental bias, but I've never been able to have a technical bias and then have the fundamentals support me. It's never worked that way. I think we've done a good job of describing what the technicals are and trying to create a picture now here's where the rubber meets the road for for the farmer that's listening to this and um okay so the, they're thinking to themselves well the technicals are great the technicals are nice how do i use them so what is a way that producers can utilize the technicals in their marketing plan mike i would say to you this chad if if you had a monthly chart generally speaking you had a monthly corn chart and the oscillator in it was terribly overbought, which which suggests that it's you're down near zero on both the lines that the oscillator shows you. You're terribly overbought and the cash market is also very strong. Your cash basis is going higher and you're in a position to have to make a decision on whether you want to sell any of your cash corn or not. If we're working one-on-one, -on -one, generally speaking, 
having knowing the risks of commodity trading and gone through all the compliance needs that you need to go through, I think I would probably make the recommendation that you wait until that technical indicator shows whether the fundamentals of that type basis are correct or not. And that that oscillator then gives you what is called a quote buy signal in the in the potential for new buyers to come in more new buyers than more new sellers. And that's the key. More new buyers than more new sellers comes in. If that is corroborated with that strong cash basis, then you can probably think you're on the right track. Then does it work the other way as well? You know, if it's giving you a, a sell signal, uh, I would imagine these technicals uh, then would tell you to, hey, just wait, hold on, wait until things change and then take action. huh? Exactly right. And I think what I would blend into that, because I talk about this each and every year in the beginning of the year, is what is our profit per acre potential? And, you know, historically speaking, it's very hard to go over $1,100 of gross revenue per acre in corn and very hard to go over $850, $800 of gross revenue per acre in soybeans. And so, using your example of having a very overbought condition and having a quote sell signal in that monthly chart stochastic. If you're up at that elevated revenue per acre, I would probably be sitting on the phone saying, why aren't we selling it here? You're, you're exceeding your expectations here and we can always buy it back. And yeah, we're not going to buy it back and make the exact amount that, that you would have made if you would have held it, but you can still participate in the long side of the market after you've made the hedge and made the sale, that very profitable sale. So that's the logic and psychology I think the best uh, producers can best utilize technical analysis. Yeah, and, and like you say, it's it's part of the overall, it, it's not just the thing you use in risk management, it's a part of it, right? It, it complements the other things that you've done with uh, with crop insurance or pre-harvest marketing or, or things like that, right? No, you know, you made a major point. I, I would, I would, I would make, uh, I would wager any producer to go into his bank or his lending institution and say, this technical analysis says to me, I shouldn't sell here. I don't think you'd get much money on the loan at that point. Whereas with crop insurance and revenue per acre, you're going to have a lot better time and a lot, I think a lot more peace and, and enjoyable life too. I mean, I don't trade my own account. I never have because me personally, I don't want to watch my money and not watch the client's money. And that's just a personal decision I've made. But it just goes back to what gives you peace of mind. Well, what gives you peace of mind is not trying to pick tops and not trying to pick bottoms if you're in the commodities because you'll be forever frustrated. I don't think there's any amount of technicals or fundamentals that can help you do that consistently year after year after year after year. Is there something about the, the, the technicals themselves or the use of them by farmers that you'd like to add at this point, something that we might have missed? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think blends into an earlier question you, you made and, and asked, Chad, was um, recently we've had the wheat market because of the Ukrainian situation really moving in a volatile way, a historically volatile way. And recently we just came off of some major support levels in the hard red wheat and in the soft red wheat. And we bounced off those support levels. Those prices held those lines of support. And to me, that was very, very important. And it helped support my analysis. But had the technicals gone below those support lines and my analysis was saying it shouldn't go below the support lines, I would have had to refigure my analysis because sometimes 
those monthly support lines can be as important as the fundamentals. And as your and it is a check on your ego, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And many times in my experience, whether it's a key moving average or a support line, you can have funds really ramp up the negative sentiment, or if it's a resistance line and that's violated, it can ramp up the positive sentiment to where you could be really wrong for quite some time because of the nature of the funds and the investors out there nowadays. So that's a key integral part that you maybe would want to understand as you get more deeply into the technical analysis. And that's kind of what you you made the comment early on too. You know, the uh, technicals look great in, in hindsight, but it's that predictive thing uh, that gets tricky sometimes. And that's where you have to check, double check and recheck and again, make a decision from there on, right? They really are my quality control. If I had to sum this whole podcast up and the, the excellent questions you've asked me, I've come to the conclusion that fundamental analysis is my opinion based upon research and history and politics and economics, but technical analysis is my check. It's my quality check to see if I'm on track or not. Uh, since we have you here on talking about technicals, define what are the technicals? The technicals are the instruments used on price charts to try and forecast future prices or price trends. And that would include lines, uh, support resistance lines, moving averages, volume, open interest, those oscillators we talked about. There's a Fibonacci retracement that is very detailed and but kind of fun because it's based upon nature and it's based upon mathematics. I've always been intrigued by that, but it's an instrument. It's a tool on a price chart to help you predict, hopefully, the future price trend. Now, some people call it the opposite, but we've kind of illustrated why it's a compliment. The fundamentals. What are the fundamentals, Mike? Fundamentals are anything from Federal Reserve policy to supply and demand of a balance sheet after a U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, WASDE report comes out. So it would encompass anything that would potentially change the supply or the demand of a commodity or a basket of commodities, because we do have to realize that a lot of money is traded each day in baskets of commodities. And so there are days, Chad, where if corn is going down, the cattle may go down with it just because the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index is liquidating positions. And so that's where the fundamentals come into play more and more. We've used this term a couple of times, the charts. How do you define what are the charts? Charts are simply put the prices visually that you can call up from the data from the exchange so that you can get a visual of what the price action, whether it's hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, what the price action has been in a certain asset that you're looking at. And it's just, it's the visual depiction of the price action. All right. And the, and you've uh, uh, illustrated it too. You know, when you when you take those prices and you make a picture, you make a chart, you, you get to see some formations in there. Uh, there. There are various formations that we might see, right? There are. And that's what the most intriguing thing about the price charts is. When I started, we had to chart our own prices on graph, graph paper. And some of the old timers would say when the computers came around, they, they would say, you'll never appreciate what happened because you're not putting that price on that uh, chart by hand on a piece of paper. I feel exactly the opposite. I feel like that I can stand away from my computer screen 15 feet. Sometimes at lunch, I'll be sitting in another chair 
and I'll look over and I'll say, wow, that chart looks amazing. I've never seen that before. And you can do that all day long now instead of having to take all that time to hand chart all those prices of those commodities. Yep. Uh, you used it a couple of times, support line, resistance line. What are, what are those things? Support lines are drawn off major lows and those major lows tend to hold and therefore you have a support in price. It's also called a price floor uh, because the prices have not gone below that price level for some time to the point where you can actually draw a line of all those lows and connect the dots so that you have that support line. And then is it resistance to the top then? That's exactly right. The resistance line is like a ceiling, but it's it's a line that would be drawn off major highs and a, a level, a price level that the market has not been able to get above. It could be a lateral line, or as I said, it could be a line that goes downward. It, it's rare that you have a resistant line, resistance line that points higher upward, Chad, but it's possible because there are other formations like flags and pennants that are part of technical analysis that can be beneficial and useful as well. You refer to yourself as a broker. Define a broker. A broker is a registered commodity representative with the NFA. So if you go to the NFA website and you look up global commodity analytics, you'll find me as a registered commodity representative. So I am federally licensed and therefore I am under the scrutiny of the federal government to perform to a certain high level to be able to continue to have my license and meet the criteria that they set out for me. And what does that allow you to do then? That allows me to solicit clients in commodities. And so what I'm talking about is futures and options. But if you would ask me a question about the stock market technicals today, I would have said, I really can't talk about that because I'm not licensed as a financial equity broker, a stock broker. So it's very defined and uh, very limited. And I think it should be because uh, the equities markets is quite a bit different than the commodities markets from a variety of reasons, if you ask me. And so how is, uh, I know there's a difference, but how do you describe the difference between a broker and like an advisor? Yeah, I mean, I am an advisor as well. You know, I'll give you an example for what I do. There are producer clients out there that have worked in brokerage before they've put on futures and options and they either haven't had the cash flow to continue to do it or they just not had good experience with it. And so they may call me and say, I'm not going to open a brokerage account. And I can say, well, that's okay. I can do cash advice for you where I just help you sell your grain off of your farm. And so I'll be an advisor in that respect. And you don't even have to open a brokerage account if you don't want to. All right. Uh, there was one other term that I wrote down here, and I think it goes back to our discussion about support line and, and resistance lines. Uh, there is a thing called a breakthrough, isn't there, Mike? Yes, that's exactly right. That's where you have broken through on usually a closing basis. That's what my preference is, Chad. If you, in, in other words, that wheat example that I gave you, those monthly chart support levels that we were holding and we bounced off of, and now we're back above them a little bit. Um, if we would go through those, and because I'm looking at a monthly chart, if we'd go through those and we'd bounce through them or fall through them instead of bouncing above them, um, that falling through, I would want that to be on a monthly close. So let's say, and this is the roughly the end of August that you and I are talking, if I would see that wheat chart give way and that support line would be violated and it's the closing day of August, I would be making some different recommendations as we go into September because clearly the analysis did not hold up as far as the fundamentals. But the breakthrough itself is when that moves through either that ceiling or that floor that we were talking about, right? That's exactly right, yeah.
if folks are listening and they like what they hear and they'd like to work with you more, um, how, how do they? How can they connect with you? How how, um, how how should they do that? The best way is to do it the free way, and that is to go to the uh, globalcomresearch.com website. That's globalcom with two m's research.com. There's a free trial that you can sign up for. You have three questions. Uh, I ask your mobile phone number so that I can get a hold of you at the end of the two weeks. But between the now and the two week trial, you get everything for free. And that way you can see exactly what I do. And at the end of two weeks, I'll call you and see what you think. If you're not interested, you won't hear from me again. So it's pretty easy. And uh, your, your privacy is uh, at the top of our list as far as not giving away any of your information. Mike, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for sitting down with us. Appreciate it very much. Chad, it's been a pleasure. And please remember, trading options and futures involve substantial risk of loss and is not suitable for all investors. (laughs) Words out of my mouth, man. (laughs) Mike Zuzalo with Global Commodity Analytics, our guest on today's Grain IQ podcast, Chad Moyer reporting. Grain IQ is a production of the Nebraska Rural Radio Association with support from the Nebraska Soybean Board. It is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. Grain IQ is hosted by Chad Moyer and produced by Rebel Saklocha. It is written and edited by Alex Wojcicki. Our project manager is Bryce Duskett. You can listen to Grain IQ on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or online at ruralradionetwork.com.